Um, what's happening in the world of news while you're sitting in here? We have an 11th member of parliament who's resigned. That is the Labour, former Labour of Minister, Minister of Labour, which is Mildred Oliphant. As well, what's been happening is that President Cyril Ramaphosa has appointed Deputy President David Mabuza as the leader of government business. This role is typically held by the Deputy President, but if you want to check out the Business Days article, which they ran last month, the headline was, Beware of the Clause of the Cat Mabuza. So make of it as you will. <laughs> Coming up next, we have Paul Sweeting, who is the Chief Risk Officer uh, for the Hassana Investment Company, which is based in Saudi Arabia. And he's ready. Thank you. can give him a round of applause to get him up here. <laughs> work which first got me really involved working in the Middle East, which was looking at um, particular levels of factor risk and how they affected certain investors. Um, because I was working for JP Morgan at the time and you had to try and come up with snazzy titles for the documents you sent out to get people's attention, we called it the missing link, which um, started people talking about... Um, uh, 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 the, the evolutionary aspect of it and perhaps suggesting that we weren't quite as uh, um, uh, weren't quite as advanced as uh, people might think but, but, but never mind, it got people's attention anyway um, so an overview of what, we're, what I'm going to talk about um, now this is in the context of defined benefit pension schemes uh, the research is anyway but, but the context should be seen as broader than that, it's essentially saying if you've got some assets and they're trying to back some liabilities, you might have some other economic risk which affects your chance of actually making these cash flows. And you should try and take that into account. Because the research was done in the context of defined benefit pension schemes, it's pr probably an easy, example to, easy set of examples to hang it on. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick with that. If you look at defined benefit pension schemes, they don't exist in isolation. So, to find benefit pension scheme, you've got a whole load of liabilities payable to pension scheme members, and you've got some assets which are backing those liabilities. But somebody's got to actually come up with those contributions. Someone's got to actually fund those, fund those assets. Now, many or most defined benefit pension schemes are in deficit, which means there aren't enough assets to pay the liabilities. What this means is that the ability of the sponsoring employer, the institution that's actually backing this pension scheme, to make good any, def any deficit is really important. And this is known as the sponsor covenant. The, the ability of the sponsor to really stand behind, to be creditworthy enough to back this pension scheme. And this does apply to both private sector and state pension schemes. And if you look at um, many of the pension schemes in the Middle East, a lot of what they um, are generating their income from is the oil price. Um, if the oil price drops, then that's going to affect their ability to fund their pension schemes, to, to fund the assets, and it's therefore worth looking at what the relationship is between the oil price and what's going on in the investments. Because these two, if they are connected, what you don't want to happen is for the oil price to drop and also at the same time the deficit in the pension scheme to increase. So the analysis that I, that I did um, was 
really driven by this, trying to see how you could measure this relationship and if you could actually do something about it. So when you're looking at sponsored covenant risk, a lot of the analysis that you see on sponsored covenant risk is kind of standalone. It's looking at how likely is the sponsor to go bust, which is kind of interesting. But as I've said, it's not just how likely the sponsor is to go bust. It's what's the state of the pension scheme going to be in those scenarios where the, pension, where the sponsor does go bust. If you want to do analysis on this, you've got to start looking at the sort of risks that the sponsor is exposed to. Now, some of them are quite general. Some of them are going to be things like just economic growth. Um, some are going to be just very exposed to a broad range of factors, which is generally going to be if the economy goes up, the company does well. If the economy goes down, the company does badly. Um, but sometimes the risks are going to be much more specific, um, involving particular commodity, like oil, for example, the oil price. But not, maybe not just the oil price. If you're looking at um, some commodities, um, commodities producers, uh, mining companies, they're going to be exposed to the price of all of the commodities to which they're exposed. Um, so there could be several distinct factors involved. Um, and even if you look at, say, financial institutions, we did some work a while ago on looking at banks, and you can pick out particular distinct factors which are correlated with the earnings of a bank in terms of short-term interest rates, um, in terms of credit spreads for costs of funding. So you can look at these various factors which affect the creditworthiness of the sponsoring employer. But also you can look at what happens to the investments in a pension scheme or the solvency of a pension scheme when bad things happen to these economic factors. It's also worth considering that these factors are not necessarily unidirectional. If you look at the oil price, um, if you are, say, BP, a drop in the oil price is bad because it adversely affects your profits. If you look at BA, British Airways, a fall in the oil price is good because it means it's cheaper to fly people around. So the direction of these risk factors isn't necessarily going to be the same, which means that the investment strategies of the pension schemes, the very large pension schemes related to these companies, should be doing potentially quite different things. And, and, and they're not, really. So there's two broad parts to this um, analysis, or two, two broad parts of the work that, that we did. Um, the first part is trying to find a way of actually measuring the exposure, trying to see how big this risk is. Because if you can't measure how big the risk is, if you can't put a number on it, you can't see whether the things you're doing are improving it or making it worse. So it's all very well to recognize that if you're an oil company, then you should probably be not having an awful lot of exposure to oil stocks in your pension scheme. That's, you know, that's fairly obvious. But for the less direct relationships between the oil price and what's going on in the pension scheme. Um, it's helpful to have a metric so you can measure how much the changes that you're making in the investments are having an impact on this level of risk. So one of the first things that we do is try to quantify it, to try to come up with a metric which shows you how big this issue is. Um, but then we go on to look and see how you can actually improve this metric um, using approaches which are a little bit more involved than most investors would normally consider. So not just changing the broad asset allocation, but just digging down a little bit and 
seeing what more fundamental changes you could make to try to improve your risk-return trade-offs, particularly related to the sponsor covenant. So the way we did this analysis, when we're looking at um, showing how this measure worked, was um, using a stochastic investment model. Um, I just want to spend a few minutes talking about this, because it's a fairly simple model that we use, but it's got some quite useful characteristics which might be of broader interest when you're looking at um, stochastic investment modeling, when you're trying to generate um, investment returns. Um, your starting point for any of this could just be a multivariate normal distribution. So I mean, most people are sort of familiar with modeling investment returns just using a multivariate normal distribution. Basically, you've got a whole load of investments. You know what expected return you're getting off each one. You know what the volatility is by the standard deviation. And you know what the correlations are between them. That's all you need. Project it all forward. It's pretty straightforward. You can do it in Excel. It's not a bad first-cut approximation. There are a few issues with this approach, though, if you are trying to get slightly more robust um, simulations, if you're trying to get a slightly more realistic view of how your investments are performing. Because the way that you'd normally do this is you would look at um, the correlations between the asset classes based on what the correlations had been previously. That's fine because unless you're going to start digging in some fairly um, obscure and unreliable derivatives, trying to work out what the market implied correlation between asset classes is, it's, it's a, bit, it's a bit, bit flaky. Volatilities as well, you probably look at how volatile the asset classes have been in the past, calculate historical standard deviations and project those forward. Um, this again is actually pretty sensible. I mean, you, you can work out what the market thinks volatility will be. If something's got an option, you can look at the option price, and that will tell you what the implied volatility is. It will tell you what the market thinks the volatility is. What the market actually thinks the volatility is, is based on what the volatility has been. You find that the implied volatility is generally very highly correlated with what the volatility has been, unless you get some big shock and everybody worries, then volatility spikes up. But that's just telling you that the market has been spooked rather than the market really thinks volatility is going to change. So generally, looking at historic volatilities is a pretty good starting point in most cases. There's a few asset classes where it's quite a bad idea to just rely on historical volatilities, and those are the illiquid asset classes. Um, if you're looking at something like real estate, if, say you're looking at direct UK real estate, the observed volatility on direct UK real estate is about 5% per annum, which is just crazy. I mean, there is no way it is that low risk. What this reflects is the fact that when you're looking at the value of investments in a portfolio, these are to a large degree based on the appraisal values of the properties. And when a surveyor comes along and says what he thinks the property is worth, he's going to say, well, okay, what was it worth last quarter? That'll be a starting point, and he'll move it a bit from that. The only way you really know what the price of an investment is is if someone actually buys or sells it. And they very rarely do that in direct real estate. So for illiquid asset classes, where you don't really know what the price is, volatility tends to be seriously understated. Um, and this is also true for things like private equity, anything where there's some sort of appraisal value. Even if you're looking at things like um, high-yield debt, where they're not actually necessarily traded as frequently as, say, S&P 500 stocks, 
the observed volatility might not really reflect the risk that you face if you go to the market and you try and sell your stocks on that particular day. If something takes, doesn't trade for several days or several weeks, then the volatility is going to be understated. And this is quite a interesting way of looking at it. If you're measuring volatility and you've got something which is traded every minute of every day, you're going to see a picture of price which goes all over the place. If you've got something which is traded only infrequently, when you look at the price, you're going to see it's a flat line until someone trades, then it moves, then you've got a flat line, and it gets traded again. So the volatility is apparently nil until something happens, and then it's nil again, and so on, which is, you know, it's, it's not reflective of the true risk. Now, there is an approach you can use to try to unsmooth these returns. Essentially what you can say is, what unsmoothed return would I need to have such that if I had a serial correlation that I can actually observe in the price, I'd get this kind of series. It's called Fisher-Geltner-Webb approach. It's a bit techy, but it's basically what you're doing is you're looking at the serial correlation you have in the returns and then implying what the underlying um, unsmoothed price would be. And if you do that for something like UK direct real estate, you find your volatility goes up from 5% to 19%, which is much more realistic. So that's quite, quite important to do. Um, we also model the, um, the marginal distributions. We model the returns on each asset class. Instead of assuming it's got a normal distribution, we use something called a skew-t distribution. So a normal distribution for an asset class just has two parameters. You've got the mean and you've got the standard deviation. You've got where you expect it to be and how much uncertainty there is around that. You could use a t-distribution. If you use a t-distribution, you've got that additional degrees of freedom parameter. So that tells you the mean, the standard deviation, and how fat the tails are. How likely really extreme ob observations are. Y you tend to find when you get to shorter time horizons, you get fatter tails. So if you're looking at daily price securities, you end up with very fat tails. If you're looking at annual returns, the tails aren't quite so fat. If you use a skew-t distribution, you can allow for the fact that gains aren't necessarily as likely as losses. And for things like commodities, this can be quite important. You can tend to find that you get um, some fairly significant spikes up in commodity prices. For equities, it's the other way around. You don't tend to find you get um, large outliers of gains in price, but markets often sell off quite strongly. So having a skew-t distribution allows you to pick up these extra two parameters, the skew and the kurtosis, or the, the fatness of the tails of the distribution. Um, one other thing on the return side, um, and this is just a general modeling point. When you're doing any sort of modeling at all, what the results you get out is basically a model telling you what you put in. So whatever, however you work out what your assumptions are going to be, you'll just get it spat out back to you. So if you put in silly assumptions, if you assume that hedge funds are going to return you 20% per annum with 3% volatility, and you do some optimization, guess what? Hedge funds look really great. Okay? So it's very important to, work to make sure the assumptions you put in are at least sensible. Now, you can actually make them uber-sensible. You can make them incredibly sensible by saying something like, I can see what the um, 
asset allocation is in the market, the market allocations to these different asset classes. If I know what the volatility and the correlation for these different asset classes is, and I know the weight, um, and I think the market is optimal, that can basically tell me what return I would expect from each asset class. I can tell what return, what risk premium the market is implying from each asset class. That's something which we'll come back to a bit later. Um, anyway, so that's on the return side. When you look at how they're linked as well, I said you can link them using correlations. And correlations, using historical correlations is definitely the starting point. But it's worth recognizing that in practice, correlations aren't actually constant. You tend to get a big spike up in correlations when markets get spooked. A way that you can allow for this is from moving away, by moving away from this kind of multivariate normal type world and using something called copulas. Has anybody here done the enterprise risk management paper? Excellent. A whole room full of people who are yet to do the enterprise risk management paper. There's a very good book on it, actually. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, is, features quite highly in this book, quite, uh, and, and in the exam, is something called copulas. What copulas are is essentially the way that you link marginal distributions. So if you look at something like a multivariate normal distribution, a multivariate normal distribution could be thought of being two separate things. It's the marginal distributions for each of the asset classes. So it's what each asset class is doing and the way those asset classes behave together. So a, a multivariate normal distribution is essentially a whole load of normal marginal distributions and a normal copula. Now, normal copula is fine. If you move to like a T copula, what you end up with is something which is a bit like moving from a normal distribution to a T distribution. Normal distribution to T distribution means your tails go from being normal to fatter. So extreme events are more likely. A normal copula to a T copula, jointly extreme events are more likely. So if you have something like a T copula, what that means is that if nasty things happen in one asset class, they're more likely to also happen in other asset classes as well. So correlations aren't constant across the whole range of observations. So that's something which is pretty easy to implement and can just make things a bit more realistic as well. But if you're just starting out on this multivariate normal, it's not, it's not a bad starting point. So. We've done all this, generated all our investment returns, now you want to measure risk. Now, a starting point for risk measurement, a fairly sensible one, is value at risk. Are people familiar with value at risk? Yeah. So, value at risk is mainly useful if you're not using just a multivariate normal distribution, because it, it differs depending on how fat the tails are. Value at risk, what it tells you is, is the point beyond which losses are unlikely to occur with a particular degree of confidence over a particular time horizon. So if you're looking at, say, 99% one month bar of minus 3.5%, that's saying there's a 1% chance that losses will exceed 3.5% in any month. So it's, it's a fairly nice, easy to explain risk measure. It's also very useful for banks. It's a very good risk measure for banks because it answers um, a question that they're interested in, which is, um, if I want to reduce my chance of going bust over a particular time horizon to a particular percentage, how much capital do I need? 
that's essentially what value at risk tells you. And they're not too bothered about what happens beyond that point. You know, you, if you're, if you, you can't be a little bust or very bust. I mean, you're either bust or you're not. So it answers the right question for banks. If you're a pension scheme, though, or any sort of investor where your metric isn't really based around yes, existing and not existing, something like conditional value at risk, CVAR, is perhaps more likely. And CVAR is similar to VAR, but instead of just looking at where the cutoff point is on the distribution, it looks at the average of the values in the tail of the distribution. So if you've got a 99% one-month CVAR of minus 5%, what that's telling you is the average, the average of the worst 1% of losses expected for a given month is 5%. So it doesn't just tell you where the cutoff point is. It says, yeah, if you end up in that tail, if it goes bad, this is, on average, how bad it goes, which is quite a sensible measure for institutions like pension schemes. So the extension that we look at, um, and you can tell I, I didn't think too hard about having a catchy name because this really isn't catchy at all, is the, 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 the CR C-bar, the Conditional Return C-bar. It's been years I slumped thought of anything better. Um, it does tell you what it's doing, though. It's using C-bar, but it's looking at a cross-return type basis. So you're not looking at the C-bar on a particular distribution. You're looking relative to another distribution. So if you're looking at, say, a 99% one-month portfolio CRC VAR of minus 4% conditioned on the oil price, what that was telling you is, if you look at the worst 1% of oil price simulations, the worst 1% of outcomes, on average, your portfolio would have lost 4% in those scenarios. So what it's saying is, if we take some variable we're interested in, such as the oil price, when things go wrong for that variable, on average, this is how your portfolio does. Okay? So it's like the C-bar, but it's looking at the portfolio based, conditioned on a separate variable. Um, for those of you that um, speak maths rather than words, if the C-bar is the expected value of x, where capital X is less than little x, the CRC-bar is the expected value of x, where y is less than y. Apparently, that makes it clearer to some people. I prefer the word version myself. Um, or a picture version. Perhaps even better. So this is trying to show graphically what would happen. So the first thing you do is you simulate your asset return. So, so what we've got here is um, a simulation of, say, the oil price. And from that, you can identify the worst, say, 5% of returns on the oil price. And for each of these returns, you can say, well, what did the portfolio do in that return? And that's the red bars here. That shows you what the portfolio is doing, that worst 5% of returns. And what you're interested in is the average of these returns here. So it's the average of the portfolio's return for this worst 5% of oil price returns, or whatever the metric you're using is. Um, when I put this in the paper and submitted it to the reviewers, they thought I needed another diagram to make it even more clear. I'm not sure if this makes it more clear or not, but the reviewers seem to like it. So we'll go with it. Um, so if you're looking at the, um, if you look at the value at risk, you can look at the value at risk 
on either portfolio returns or look at the value of risk on the oil price. The value of risk on the portfolio returns, that's the point at which you've got 5% of your observations underneath it. The dotted line, that's the C-bar. So that's the average of those observations which are below the line. You've also got a value at risk here for the oil price. So that's the point at which you've got 5% of your observations below it, and that's the average of those observations. What you've got here is something where you've said, OK, this is the average of the portfolio returns once you get into this tail here. Um, again, I thought, the, I thought the color chart before was a better explanation and clearer, but at least one person thinks this is clearer, the, 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 the reviewer of the paper. So, so that's fine. We've measured it, and we've looked to see how bad the problem is. And, and it's, it is always good to know how big the issues that you have are, but it's more helpful to be able to then say what you can do about it, what changes you can make to, to make your portfolio more resilient. Um, and there's two things that we looked at here. Um, the, the first is um, changing the allocation between asset classes. The second was changing the allocation within asset classes. Um, I should say that there are other things that we, that we looked at and that we discarded as ways of dealing with this. Because one thing you can do is you can say, well, if the issue we've got is we're exposed to a drop in the oil price, why don't we just take a short position in oil futures? And, you know, when we're talking about this with a large oil company, saying, yeah, I'm not sure how well I'd get out with the management if we as a pension scheme took a short position in oil futures. That might not be seen as showing particular confidence in our sponsoring employer. Um, so, so these ways are perhaps more politically acceptable than essentially shorting your employer's business. So, the first thing you can do is perhaps change the strategic asset allocation. Um, this is potentially going to be a challenge if you've got a um, if you've got an asset allocation which is already efficient. If you're trying to make it more efficient with respect to another variable, you've got to try and make it either less efficient or, or different from where it is. You've got to move away from your efficient frontier. Most asset allocations aren't actually efficient because an efficient asset allocation is very sensitive to changes in your assumptions. So they're usually sort of pretty efficient. And it might be you could get to another pretty efficient portfolio which is more resilient in terms of the exposure to this, this risk factor. So... Um, you, you can do something on this, but it's not going to be the best way. Um, I'll leave you to dig into them. I think, I think the slide's going to be available afterwards, and, and the, the paper's available anyway. Um, but you can see that you can make changes to, um, to an asset allocation which can gain you more resilience. Um, the more interesting part, I think, is using alternative equity benchmarks. Um, so what we did here was we said, let's start with the, um, a market cap-weighted benchmark by sector. And if you remember earlier, I talked about different ways of getting expected returns on asset classes. We can use those approaches for getting different expected returns on equity sectors. If you know what the weight of each sector is, you know what the volatility of that sector has been, um, and you know what the correlation between the sectors is, you can say, well... 
if the market's efficient, then this is what the expected return on each of these sectors should be for the observed market weights to be the efficient market weights. So if I did um, an optimization to an efficient frontier, found the optimal point, you can, you can back out what expected returns you would need to have for that efficient point on the frontier to be the market allocation. Um, this approach was actually um, started by Bill Sharp, who has mentioned in the previous presentation as well. He's a very busy boy. Um, it's also the starting point for the Black Litterman um, approach, which is a way of working out market-implied returns and by uh, it's a, a structured way of implementing your views on what returns an asset class are going to be. So if you do this, what you can do is you can say, well, I know what the expected return is going to be on the market-weighted portfolio. Can I change it to get the market, the expected return pretty much the same, the volatility pretty much the same, but reduce my exposure to um, whatever risk factor I'm worried about. Um, and that's what we did here. Um, this is, again, in relation to the oil price. What you find is energy drops substantially. So that goes from 12.5% of the index to 0.8% of your equity portfolio. Still a little bit in there because you've got some diversification. You find that um, financials move up hugely. IT drops very strongly. And you've got a fairly similar expected return, a little bit more risk, but you find that whereas the CRC VAR, the 95% the cross-return CVAR was 5% before, it goes up to 11%. What that essentially means is that for the worst 5% of oil price returns, the index would have given you a 5% expected return in the past. You can rejig it such that for the worst 5% of oil price returns, your equity portfolio should give you, or would have historically given you, 11%. In other words, you're rejigging it to make sure that when the oil price drops, you're holding equities which are likely to outperform, which is quite nice. That's what you want, because when the sponsor is least able to put money into the pension scheme, your investment should have done better than average. Now, what this also means is that if the oil price rallies, you're probably holding investments which aren't going to do great, but that shouldn't matter too much, because the sponsor is going to be in a position to be able to put more money into the pension scheme in those scenarios. Essentially what you're trying to make sure is that your investments are negatively correlated with whatever risk factor you've got. So you can combine the two, the, asset, the overall asset allocation and the, um, the, the sector weights to improve things. Again, I'll let you have a look at this later on, but it does show a fairly significant improvement in the portfolio funding in those, those stress situations. Um, and this is one of the things I've also talked about as well. The, the fact that um, we look at scenarios where a drop in the oil price is bad, but that's not always going to be the case. Other commodities can be used and other combinations of risk factors can be used as well. If you do want to look at it in more detail, this is the paper which was in the Annals of, uh, of Actuarial Science. Um, and uh, hopefully the slides will be available so people can have a dig into those if they're interested. And if anybody would like to talk to me about it later, that would be fine too. Um, hopefully we've got time for a couple of questions at the end. We do. We do. Oh, we've got one question apparently. Sorry, I've overrun. Uh, yes. Okay. Just shout. 
certainly uh, wasn't in the conversation I would say most of the talks were he's uh, creating a great talk on part of the Shepard's fine and I think we'll chat about the person that one. But it was in the in the pension scheme at the moment that you can afford to buy part of this whole uh, deficit in the pension. So I certainly recognise this case. Um, the example you presented is on a relatively simple commodity producer Yeah, so if you want to extend it, and this is something I actually did with, with the banking sector, um, you pick something like um, earnings or perhaps the share price, and then you just build a regression model of that and the factors which you think are the key factors. So then you can come up with a weighted average of the main factors. And then you replace the oil price with that kind of what comes out of the regression equation. So a weighted average of the particular factors, which was something like um, credit spreads, interest rates, um, I forget what the other factors were, but it, but it, was, it was a fairly simple, just linear combination of, of, of some factors. Now, you could just say, well, I'll just use the share price, the company's share price as, as being the, the dependent variable, and just look at um, trying to build an investment strategy which is negatively correlated with the share price. The challenge with that is the share price has a lot of noise in as well. You know, if the whole market drops, that doesn't necessarily mean the share price is any worse off. So looking at something like earnings and correlating that on these other factors, and then using these factors, a combination of these factors the risk, as the risk factor is, is the way we look at it. Any more questions? Okay, a round of applause. Thank you, Thank you very much.